When most people look for escapes from boring routines and unfulfilling jobs, packing up your family with five children to sail the world for a year isn't seen as a viable solution to life's frustration. But Eric and Emily Orton did, and they share their amazing story in their book, Seven at Sea. But it was really just a a dream in hibernation, and a couple of years later, it came out in full bloom when Eric said, you know, I think the seven of us on a sailboat would be enough universe for me. Travel writer Brianna Johnson lived as an American expat on the island of St. Martin. Moving beyond culture shock took some time, but her interactions with the locals offered a profound discovery. Some of the differences weren't as significant as I had thought. Just seeing how those kids accepted me and didn't really care what I looked like or what my accent sounded like, they just were interested in in having somebody that cared about them. Join us as we learn how decisions to travel to St. Martin changed the lives of two families on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. In the book Seven at Sea, Why a New York Family Cast Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat, authors Eric and Emily Orton remind us that we have the ability to customize our lives regardless of our perceived constraints. Eric and Emily, thank you guys so much for joining us on World Footprints. Tanya and Ian, we're so happy to be with you today. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Now, you two share quite the adventure in your book, Seven at Sea, Why a New York City Family Cast Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat. And Eric, before we dive into the why, I want to begin with a bit of the the backstory. Uh, So it's my understanding you sat in your cubicle in Manhattan overlooking the Hudson River and every night you'd see sailboats kind of passing you by and those nightly images planted a seed in you to sail the world. But you had some considerations. You're married with five children. Um, Your wife doesn't like, your wife Emily doesn't like deep water. Um, You had no sailing experiences and you had schooling and financial concerns. And I know most people, whether single or married with family, would only dream about living on the water. But you guys did it. So why did you take that type of risk? Uh, First of all, you've painted that picture beautifully, so thank you. Um, uh, Why did we take that risk? I I think if you back up even further, the reason I ended up in that cubicle was because I had taken a risk uh, on a business. I was producing theater in New York, and it was a big bust. And when that show failed, it was really embarrassing to me. And so I just sort of took this temp job down in the financial district to keep paying the bills. And I was at a real crossroads in my life and was just trying to figure out where I wanted to go next. And for me, sailing was one of those things that was just so completely different from anything else that I've been doing in my life. And, and after trying to do something big, like producing shows in New York that involve a lot of people and a lot of complexity for me, ironically, sailing seemed simple and within my control, something that I could just do. And so I think that was part of it. Plus it just seemed timeless and beautiful and and I wanted to kind of get out of the, the the hole that I felt like I was in and sailing seemed like some kind of escape and uh, yet something that I could do on my own so I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how did you overcome the fact that you had no sailing experience? 
Well, you know, I was working at this job and I was blind to the fact that where all these sailboats were coming from, because they were all identical. And I realized that immediately downstairs from where I'm working on the opposite side of the building where I entered was a sailing school. And once I realized that there was this sailing school, I kind of was like, well, you know, I don't know anybody who sails. I've never sailed. I've never really been on a sailboat. Um, and so, but I was telling Emily I was interested and she said, you know, you should just check it out. And I was like, no, sailing's for other people. You have to be rich or connected or grow up with it. And she encouraged me. And so I kind of stepped into a world that I was very uncomfortable in. And I walked into the sailing school and I said, I've never done this. How does this work? And they were very welcoming and friendly and didn't make me feel like an idiot. And uh, one thing led to another and we, we were kind of off to the races. You know, just that icebreaker, I think, was was a big pivotal turning point for us because it was about going into a place where I didn't feel like I belonged. Emily, you all of you guys participated in the sailing school. Is that correct? Yeah, so that is not how I thought things were going to go down when I encouraged him to <laughs> check out the sailing school. I, he said it was something that he felt like he could do on his own, sort of have control over, um, maybe regain that sense of, of, of confidence and control after the, that business failure. But um, because he worked nights, they didn't have any normal hour classes he that you know he could take he needed something in the middle of the day in the middle of the week and um i was still pretty excited that maybe he could find a co-worker who also worked nights or maybe a friend you know in the community or some somebody with different hours and that was not to be and he just didn't let that dissuade him and you know what i want is that i wanted to uh strengthen my family relationships. Eric was supporting me in my dream of being a stay-at-home mom, and I wanted to support him in his dreams, and I didn't know that his dreams were going to be so scary to me, but it was a short-term commitment, and he um, he was willing to take on a second job to pay for it. I could see how committed he was, so um, he asked if my, me and our two oldest daughters, who were 11 and 9 at the time, would take this class with him, and um, I guess this just feels like a thing that you do when, when someone you love needs you. And we, we stepped up um, for the short term. I reminded him I was afraid of deep water, and he reminded me that we weren't planning to get in the water. So with their new certifications, Eric and Emily decided to see how well they do with all of the children on board. The very first time we sailed as a family, we had a baby, a toddler, a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, and an 11-year-old. And the, the three youngest kids had never been on a boat before, and they were scared. And you know how different it is when you're the passenger and then you suddenly become the driver. It, all mm. those things were not muscle memory for us, so we were having trouble. Then we got out into the main channel on Tom's River, New Jersey, and it was just like a little bit tippy. There were other boats and jet skis and it was causing a wake. And every time we tipped just the slightest bit, it was just wails and screams. <laughs> you would have oh, thought dear. we were in the perfect storm. You know, I think what did make it the perfect storm for us is that the other boaters were literally pointing at us and laughing. And I know we were a hot mess, but we made it out and we made it back. And, you know, again, I thought that was the end of it, but it was really just a, a dream in hibernation. And a couple of years later, it came out in full bloom when Eric said, 
you know, I think the seven of us on a sailboat would be enough universe for me. So I was like, okay, well, when would you want to go? And he said, I'd like to go, you know, before our oldest needs to leave for college. And that gave us about four years mm. to um, really get our act together. And, you know, that's when the, the sort of dream became a goal with a purpose of connecting as a family, exploring the world together. And I think Eric, he really had a good line for me. He's like, if we live on a sailboat, you never have to leave home. Hey, Eric, just uh, hearing all of this from Emily has put me under a great deal of stress. And I can only imagine (laughs) living in New York, five kids. And on top of that, you've got all of the, the, the normal family considerations to deal with. And now you lop on this uh, sailing uh, experience. How did you guys manage all of that? How did the kids react to it? I think the secret was that nothing really happened quickly. As Emily said, this happened over a period of years. And, you know, it, when people hear that we went and sailed for a year, it feels a little bit dramatic. Like we just sort of chucked everything and, and threw caution to the wind and went off sailing. When in fact, it was, it was very gradual. Our kids grew up. We did, Emily and I didn't grow up sailing, but our kids did because we found a little sailing school out on Long Island that we, we got a membership for like 150 bucks a month. And we could sail these little 20-foot boats as much as we wanted. And so we'd go out during the day with our kids. And it was nice because we were away from computers and cell phone service. And we would just be out as a family. And we taught our kids how to sail uh, by going out, you know, once a week for several seasons. And they would see us going. We, you know, we flew to the Caribbean for a week and Emily and I, and we took a class on bigger boats and, and deeper water. And, and as we were getting serious about this, uh, we decided to actually charter a boat down in Florida over the holidays. I, I nickel and dime this boat company to give us two nights. And we're like, if we're going to go sailing with our kids for a year, we should at least try this out one, over one night. And so we went for two and, so we drove down to Florida and spent three days on a boat, and the kids loved it. Well, I cooked a lot of bacon on that trip. I was sort of hoping they would like it. <laughs> bacon and brownies. Drive them. So what, what is the route you, you actually sailed, and how often did you dock? I'd like to add to what Eric was saying, that we built consensus slowly, and because this dream spread to all the kids, they were afraid of leaving friends. They were a little nervous, but they put a lot of trust in us. And, um, you know, not everybody was excited all the time as we boarded the airplane to, to um, meet our boat in St. Martin, which is where we start our journey to answer this question. Mm-hmm. As we entered that airplane, um, our eight-year-old son said to me, all right, let's get this over with so we can go home. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't always, yay, you know, let's, let's go sailing as a family. Um, but there was there was a lot of trust, and everybody had some good times and some bad times, and mm-hmm. I think we're all glad that we did it. But we started in St. Martin, and um, we planned to then sort of get our boat ready, get groceries, make any changes to it that we needed to because we had never seen it in person before. And then our um, end goal we knew was going to be uh, – we thought would be back in the U.S., but our first – leg of the journey was just get the boat outfitted, get used to it, and then um, move on to the British Virgin Islands and sort of take it from there, um, see how the time was flowing. Uh, but we ran into some 
snags right, right off the bat. And we experienced um, two dilemmas. The first uh, I'll call destination fever because we were so eager to get from point A to point B that it was really difficult for us to appreciate where we were. And that was caused by the second one, dreamer's remorse, uh, when we arrived at the boat and learned that it was going to be a lot more complicated than we originally thought, especially because one of the engines was not working the way that we had hoped. Ultimately, we sa- we did end up sailing uh, through the Virgin Islands, the Bahamas, over Florida, and up the East Coast. And people always wonder, you know, how did people think that we were underway the whole time, which is not true. You know, it, it, we would spend days and weeks in anchorages and coves sometimes. And so we we sailed as much as we needed to to make sure we had good weather and get to the places we wanted to be. But we sailed very slowly that route and, and spent a lot of time being where we were and, and exploring the places we were at and being together. What are some of the things that you learned uh, about yourselves that surprised you? And we'll start with you, Eric. I think I learned to dial it back. Um, I, you know, I grew up in the DC area and uh, which is a pretty type A kind of town. And then I moved to New York, which is another type A kind of town. And I was, I was pretty go, go, go. And the sailing life forced me to really chill out and trust that, you know, you have to, you have to pay attention to and respect the elements and the circumstances. And so many things are beyond your control. You can't make things happen. And I think so often in life, I felt like I could make things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and so I learned to let things emerge. And that was a long, hard lesson for me because, but I realized that as much as I wanted to have all the answers and know all the information about sailing from this point to that point, I would, I would oftentimes have to leave, you know, pull anchor and we'd sail off and head towards an island. And I should, I, you know, I could have a good, decent plan, but I had to be very flexible within that plan because lots of things would come up that I could never anticipate both good and bad. Similarly, I felt like I did try to control a lot of circumstances. I think I more wanted to protect everybody and I wanted to take care of everybody. Um, I was worried a lot about safety. I, I think I had a lot of insecurities when we left. I mean, I said I wanted to do something to disrupt ourselves as a family and, and hopefully like level up communication wise and just really, um, share some experiences that would galvanize us, but it was really scary to then actually do it. And when we actually did it and over the course of those, you know, several months, troubleshooting, problem solving, and just experiencing um, daily life aboard a sailboat with our family, I really developed a lot of personal confidence. I came to realize that, um, that I always wanted to show up, even if, uh, even if it wasn't successful, um, I just felt really good about bringing my best and then um, failing forward, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about um, the, the three kinds of confidence that we gained, and I think those were some that I really identified for myself. One is the confidence that naturally grows from cultivating a new skill or competency, Um, The second was a confidence that also naturally grows from doing what you say you will do. Every time we did what we said we would do or that I did that, you know, I trusted myself more and other people trusted me more as well. And the last is what Eric was talking about, just this sort of calm feeling that um, I didn't have to worry about everything. I could just wonder, you know, 
what would happen next. What is the one thing that you wanted your children to take from this experience? The thing that our children did take from the experience is, as our 15-year-old daughter said it, um, I became comfortable being uncomfortable. You can read more about Eric and Emily's year-long sailing adventure with their five children in their book, Seven at Sea, Why a New York City Family Cast Off Convention for a Life-Changing Year on a Sailboat. You can order a copy of the book from the link to Amazon on this show page. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world one story at a time. We invite you to travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift. Anytime you move to a new country, there's always a culture shock and a period of adjustment that you experience. But travel writer Brianna Johnson tells us that repatriation requires a longer time to readjust. Brianna, what initially took you to St. Martin? St. Martin has one of uh, the best American offshore medical schools. And my husband had been applying to medical schools in the U.S. and had gotten waitlisted decided he didn't want to try to wait another year to get into med school, so he went ahead and accepted an offer to go to American University of the Caribbean in St. Martin. We were talking earlier about St. Martin and St. Martin. Can you explain um, what the difference is between the two pronunciations? St. Martin as a whole refers to island in the Caribbean that's 37 square miles, but with the French spelling St. Martin with a hyphen in the middle, That refers to the top half, which is part of France. And then Saint-Martin, with the Dutch spelling, refers to the bottom half, which is a former Dutch colony. And you actually were in the Dutch side of the island in Saint-Martin. Yes, we were very close to the French border, but we were on the Dutch side. So what were your initial uh, thoughts about the island, uh, the expectations, and and how were those shaped uh, when you first arrived? Well, to be honest, I tried not to have expectations because I knew that was something that would potentially lead to disappointment or frustration once I got there. But I think it's impossible not to have any. So I think what I thought when I pictured a Caribbean island was, oh, I'm going to walk down the street and I'm just going to be picking mangoes and bananas and, you know, it's going to be great. And then once I got there, I realized, wow, this is actually kind of um, a desert island, really. Like half of it is, you know, full of cactus and the other half's a little greener. But for the most part, they actually import all of their food from other uh, islands and from the U.S. and Europe. So that was a huge surprise to me was to see uh, the climate as well as the, uh, the level of tourism and the development that was on the island was very different than my, you know, idyllic, tropical, lonely place with monkeys and palm trees that I kind of had in my head. When did you begin to adjust to your new environment? I would say that I finally really adjusted to it about five months after we got there, because that's when I got brave enough to drive. I think in a lot of ways, I had adjusted to the culture a little bit before that. Since I wasn't driving, I had to take the bus everywhere. And that really helped me get into the local culture. And then in other ways, it took me the entire time to get used to 
some of the different aspects that were very different than the American culture I was used to. So was that a hard adjustment for you or a hard period of adjustment for you? Yeah, and in some ways it really was. I remember when we first got there, the culture shock really hit me very hard. When we initially moved into our apartment, we didn't have everything we needed. So we, you know, took the bus downtown and we went to the store that had a great sale because it was going out of business. And we found out why it was going out of business because everything we took back to our apartment wasn't working. Like the bedspread and the sheets didn't fit because they weren't standard size. And the window in our apartment was very small, so it didn't fit the curtains. And the way the door was put in was to discourage centipedes from coming in. So we couldn't get a doormat in front of it. And I was just so frustrated with that. I remember I just like threw myself on the bed dramatically and started like crying. And my husband comes in. He's like, are you okay? And I was telling him all of my woes. And as I'm talking to him, he's opening up the knife block we bought that was supposed to have knives in it. And he pulls it out and somebody had stolen all the knives out of it while I was in the store. And so we both just started cracking up and laughing and realized we just had to have a completely different approach to being in a new place and just look at it with humor and um, not really have any, you know, grand ideas of how things were supposed to go, but kind of just go with the flow and learn while we set up our new lives. Wow. Brianna, you mentioned that it took about five months to get adjusted. Mm-hmm. What experience or how how did you come to embrace life on St. Martin? Well, uh, a friend of mine had found a, a local Little League team that uh, was it was really interesting the way the coach had it set up. He'd realized a lot of his kids were having trouble with school. So um, during practices every day, he would have them start with doing homework and doing lessons that he gave them, and then they could practice their baseball. And so he took a lot of volunteers who could come every day and, and work with the kids. And so one of my friends had been doing that, and she invited me to go with her. And by doing that and starting to engage with the local kids, um, I learned kind of about what, you know, the things that were important to them and uh, the things that were significant in their culture and in their world. And at the same time, realized that some of the differences weren't as significant as I had thought, just seeing how those kids accepted me and didn't really care what I looked like or what my accent sounded like. They just were interested in, in having somebody that cared about them. And I think that really was the biggest thing that helped me adjust was realizing that I had a place in that island, no matter who I was. It didn't matter that I wasn't from there. I could still make a difference and I could still um, find my spot in the community. What are some of the things that you learned about yourself that you didn't realize? Um, I think one of the biggest things was learning that I could be capable and more independent because when, when we moved there, I had only been married for a year, and I had lived with my parents up till the time I got married. And I had, um, you know, I had been going to college and, and working a part-time job, and I hadn't really had the chance to uh, kind of, I guess, spread my wings and figure out the things that I could do. And I was really kind of thrown into that and forced in a good way to uh, learn that I could do things that I never Um, really thought were going to be important or that I was going to have to learn because my husband was so busy as well. So I had to, I had to figure out how to run a household in a foreign country using currency that I didn't know. And um, the place I could afford to shop was on the French side. So I had to learn how to do that without speaking French, but still being able to navigate the grocery store 
And then the island's roads were so bad and our car was so bad that um, I had to learn how to change a tire uh, by myself. My, my dad had taught me, but I had to remember how to do that by myself without having a cell phone or anything and just do it with a, the jack I found in the back of the car. And I had to learn how to patch a tire and I had to do all these things on my own. And I think um, realizing my own capabilities really, uh, really helped me to grow into who I was instead of just um, kind of depending on Google and other people to help me through life. Mm-hmm. And and now you find yourself um, going through another culture shock, kind of a reverse culture shock at this point because you're back in the States. Yeah, I think that's something that most expats who go home aren't really prepared for because it's, it's not really something that we talk about a lot. You hear a lot about culture shock and adjusting to your new home when you go overseas. But when you come back, you have to do the process all over again. And I think it's actually harder because for one thing, you're not in a new exciting place getting to you know try new food and explore all these cool uh, attractions. You're, you're back home and you're suddenly realizing, oh, wow, there are a lot of things about the culture that I always took for granted that maybe I don't necessarily like. And at the same time, like things have changed when you come back. Um, I, I uh, wrote a story for World Footprints about how I came back to the grocery store in the States and um, chip had become a thing and I had never heard of it and it had been around for months and um, I had a really hard time figuring out how to pay for my groceries because the cashier didn't understand why I didn't know what chip was. What the, um, the chips on the credit card. The, the chips on the credit card, yes. Yeah. I was still swipe it and you couldn't do that anymore. So that was that was difficult. But I think the hardest thing was um, the fact that I had changed so much and the things that I cared about were different and my experiences were different. So when I came back to, um, you know, my old community, I had missed two years of everybody's lives. And so I didn't really know how to relate to them as much anymore. And they didn't know how to relate to me as much anymore. And I think I needed to give myself a break and I needed to give them a break and realize we needed to get to know each other again a little bit better. Um, And I didn't realize that when I came back, that that was going to be an issue. So that was, that was really hard for me. Is there anything that you miss about St. Martin? Yes, for sure. Uh, I miss that place every day. I would love to go back if I could, I would, I would definitely move back there. Um, But I think the thing that I miss the most isn't really the beaches, even though they're amazing. Um, but it's, it's the people. And I really, I really miss getting to just drive down the road and visit friends that live there or go see the kids that I was helping out, um, on the little league team. I miss them a lot. And it's, um, it's weird to get on Facebook and see pictures of the things that they do and not get to be a part of it. So I think that's what I miss the most, but I think anywhere you go, when you leave another place, you're always going to miss the people. You can read all of the wonderful articles Brianna has written for World Footprints by visiting her author profile page at worldfootprints.com. And you can read about some of her other adventures on her website, thirdculturewife.com. These 
stories really showcase the transformative power of travel and the importance of taking risks to explore the world. And as you know, dear, I took a huge risk when I moved to London. The reverse culture shock that Brianna is going through, I think maybe I'm still going through it, even having uh, come back from London uh, over almost two decades ago. Why do you think that's so? It's an adjustment, and I think because when you travel, you you change. You refine the person that you are, and in some ways, you're perceived when you come back as a, a new person, and the people that you've known growing up with may not connect with you. Obviously, my worldview changed, and I came back to a circle of people whose world viewpoint did not mirror the new world viewpoint that I had. Anytime we travel, particularly to a foreign country and we come back home, we look at our home country a little differently. And I think that's always part of the growth that takes place in that transformation. And sometimes that makes one feel a little sad, perhaps, or even perhaps frustrated with their country, home country, or, or disconnected. But I think that's a natural experience. But that's how we grow. Yes. So before we go, we'd like to leave you with these words from Helen Keller. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Thank you for traveling with us today. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to connecting you to the world one story at a time on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.